the Brussels Report podcast. Well, uh, th thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to talk about public finances in the Eurozone, but it's, it's really could be considered public finances in the Western world because very, very few countries are escaping that, whether you're talking about non-Euro using countries, whether you're talking about the United States, Canada, North America, a lot of the developed Pacific Rim countries. Uh, what we're basically looking at is a story about bad fiscal policy or suboptimal fiscal policy, which in and of itself might not be a huge problem. It might simply be, okay, you're gonna be, you're gonna grow a little bit slower as compared to some other countries. But when you marry it to demographic change, that's where I think it, it, you see a very, very grim uh, long run picture. And, and I'll go ahead and make a slight point at the end that it's not just fiscal policy uh, that should be concerning us. And probably the chart to start with, uh, this is from the Our World and Data website at Oxford University. And this is looking at social spending as a share of GDP. Uh, and not just you know European countries, I have like the US in there, Australia and others, but basically starting in the 1930s and really accelerating in the 1960s, uh, the social welfare state was created and expanded. And that had dramatically changed the size of government in Western societies. Before the welfare state, government spending consumed less than 10% of GDP uh, in just about every Western country. Obviously, during wars, it spiked upwards, but the, the steady state normal equilibrium level of government spending uh, was, was way smaller than what you have in places like Hong Kong and Singapore today. Uh, you know, so if, if you were to compare it to modern societies, it, it really was dramatically small public sectors back then. But as I said, the welfare state changed that. Now, this only goes up to, I think the last year of data officially was 2017 that they had in this, uh, in this, uh, in these charts. And so obviously we're not seeing the pandemic effect here, but the pandemic effect is actually trivial compared to something else. And that's the demographic effect. And I want to start by sort of observing that we probably all learned in school about the population pyramid, the idea that normally throughout history, our societies were fairly similar, where we had very few old people at the top of the pyramid, then you had a big generation of workers, and then even bigger generations of children. And who are the children? The children are the future workers. And so you had, with this population pyramid, you had the ability to finance a modest size welfare state. Now, whether that was a good idea or not, I have very laissez-faire sympathies. I don't think it was a good idea, but it could be a stable, well-run system within certain bounds, so long as that population pyramid remained in our societies. But something's happened. The population pyramid is disappearing. This is from the European Union's aging report. And you can see uh, the, the darker bars uh, are, well, you know, male and female on the different sides. The darker bars are where things will be in 2070. The lighter bars are where things were in 2019. And you can see that there is no population pyramid. There's a population cylinder. And that population cylinder, in some sense, uh, will almost become an upside down pyramid as we see more and more old people in our societies. And every time my hair gets grayer, I'm glad we're living longer. But a lot of us are living longer. And you combine that with the fact that over time we're having fewer and fewer children, that population pyramid has disappeared, and that has enormous implications for public finances. Because what are tax and transfer welfare states? Tax and transfer welfare states on net take money from younger people, i.e. working age people, and they give benefits to older people. And, and when you have fewer and fewer of the younger people who are working and more and more of the older people, something has to give. So, so this chart right here uh, is the EU population by age group and gender. Let's look at a couple of other uh, tables here. This is the economic old age dependency ratio. You're not going to be able to read these numbers. Don't worry about that. I'll get to it in a second. So old age dependency ratio. Also from that same European uh, Union uh, uh, aging report, the economic dependency ratio. So one is how many old people are there compared to the working age. And then the other one is how many people are just 
broadly speaking, including like children, are depending on the working age population. So, and you'll notice that I, I've highlighted in red underneath, well, you probably can't see that. You might not even be able to see this, but what you're seeing here is that the old age population ratio, uh, old age dependency ratio, goes from 46.3 or 44.7, depending on whether you're looking at the Eurozone area or the European Union as a whole. By the time we get to 2045, it's in the upper 60s. And then if you go out to 2070, it's getting over 70. And if you look at the total economic dependency ratio, what are you seeing? It's going from about 120 to 136 to 140. So what that basically means is that that chart that I already showed you at the very beginning about how social welfare spending uh, has increased dramatically over time, keep in mind, it's going to get much bigger, or if you're if you me, I would say much worse, a much bigger problem. But whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to have bigger government, we're going to get bigger government, significantly bigger government, consuming a much greater share of GDP in all Western nations, Euro, European Union nations, Eurozone. You know, it doesn't matter how you slice it, how you define it, very few countries are escaping this. And when I say very few countries, I'm including the United States, because here's our population pyramid, and you can see it through time. Yeah, it's a, it's a pyramid, but all of a sudden now, at the lower levels, it's, it's, it's expanding, and now we're looking at future projections. You can see we have the very same problem that you have in Europe, just maybe delayed by you know, 10 or 20 years, uh, because our, our demographics have held up a little bit better. Now, I'm showing all this demographic data because let's now consider who might be vulnerable to a fiscal crisis. And by the way, it's important to define what a fiscal crisis is because there are several types of fiscal uh, crisis. The most obvious one is what Greece suffered from uh, about, what, 12 years ago, and what perhaps Italy might be on the verge of suffering from. That's when you have the so-called bond vigilantes, international investors, they simply decide, I'm not sure we should buy any more of that government's bonds. We don't trust that they can pay the money back. And so all of a sudden, there's just a flight away from those government bonds. Interest rates spike up dramatically. The government is really no longer able to finance government spending by going to credit markets. Now, of course, we're in a situation right now where the European Central Bank has sort of made that a, a difficult thing to calculate because we don't know to what extent some countries are now being propped up by ECB bond purchases. And if that disappeared or if it begins to get phased out, which in theory it is, that is happening, it will be very interesting to see what happens then uh, to other to countries that have been dependent on the European Central Bank to buy their debt. But this shows where government debt was as a share of GDP before the pandemic. Just to give you an idea, we're going to sort of then look post-pandemic, but again, the pandemic is going to be trivial. It's a, it, yes, it's a big bump, but it's going to be a trivial bump compared to the demographic change. So you can see that some countries like Switzerland and Australia are in very good shape. Then you have France, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Japan uh, way on the other end with significant amounts of government debt. And then, again, pre-pandemic, but just since the last time we had the great uh, the financial crisis, Look at what's happened to government debt in various countries just over that 12-year period. Again, mostly not counting the pandemic. You see that some countries shot up dramatically. I don't think a single country actually, well, Switzerland's government debt went down and Norway's government. It helps to have a lot of oil uh, uh, that you're sitting on. Uh, but you can see that government debt, there, there was no retrenchment. There was no sort of paying down debt. There was no putting your fiscal house in order after the financial crisis. Governments continued to borrow and borrow. And then, of course, what happened is we got the, we got the uh, pandemic. This is another way of looking at that, this data. And we see countries where government debt increased significantly in red. And then you see countries, Germany and Switzerland, where between at least 2009 and 2018, so definitely pre-pandemic, you can see who was sort of putting their house in order and who wasn't. And the countries that really did a bad job were Portugal, Greece, the UK, Spain, and Australia, although to be fair to the Aussies, 
their government debt started low, 20% of GDP, and it got up to 42% of GDP, which most European countries, or for that matter, the U.S., would be delighted to have government debt of 42% of GDP. So, so, yes, you should look at where you're starting in addition to the rate of change to get a sense of whether or not a country has some fiscal issues. Now let's get up to the present and focus on Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. And here we do see the impact of the pandemic, uh, government debt spiking upwards, and then as a lot of that pandemic-related spending wound down, then fortunately, and economies reopened, you, you get a slight downward dip. But look at where they were post-2008 crisis. Uh, again, there was a period where their government debt was either flat or even coming down a tiny bit, but there really wasn't any effort to seriously reduce uh, the burden of government debt. The government spending continued, uh, and, and now these countries are in a much more vulnerable, vulnerable position than they were 12 years ago. I mean, you know, let's put these things in context. Greece blew up when government, when government debt was about 113% of GDP. Well, now Greece is 200, but all these other countries are well over that level. Uh, for uh, for Portugal and uh, Spain, it's about 140% of GDP, and for Italy, they're over 170% of GDP. This is OECD data, by the way. So the question is, we're now in a situation where all it takes is a significant recession, because what happens in a recession? Your GDP goes down. What does that mean? Well, that ratio of government debt as a share of GDP, uh, you know, if, if something is happening to, to the denominator, uh, that's going to affect the, the ultimate calculation. So government debt is going to skyrocket, uh, and if you start having these very negative scenarios uh, where there might be an energy crisis on top of it, 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 it's just not a pretty picture, and then you do wonder, when do those bond vigilantes strike? What will happen? What will trigger something? Will a government, you know, we, we saw sort of a mini version of that uh, over the last month or so in the United Kingdom. Now, oh, well, well, the trust was to give you what energy subsidies would cut taxes, and then all of a sudden the bond market got rattled in the UK. Well, fairly or not, that's a symptom, that's a signal of what I think might be happening in other countries uh, in the near future. So the question is, what, not just what's going to happen, but what could happen, what will be the responses of lawmakers, uh, what might they do? Of course, oftentimes in Europe, unfortunately, and of course in Washington as well, a lot of people say, well, let's just raise taxes. Very simplistic answer. But the question is, what's the real world evidence on the effect when the countries raise taxes? Uh, are there negative growth effects? Uh, what about the whole public choice school of economics, which analyzes the behavior of politicians and bureaucracies, uh, sort of applies economic analysis to their incentives? Uh, what about out-migration? And this, of course, gets into what Andreas was talking about with tax competition. A lot of politicians around the world say, well, if we all agree to raise taxes at the same time, and not only that, but we target and punish low-tax jurisdictions, then, then we don't have to worry, because then our taxpayers won't have any incentive to escape someplace. Now, as a matter of public policy, creating some sort of cartel for the whole purpose of fleecing taxpayers, I think, is a very, very bad idea. It's also based on some economically very, very dubious and screwy assumptions. Uh, that, not, not to get all boring, but proponents of tax harmonization, they have this theory called capital export neutrality that actually is based on the notion that if all countries have the same tax rate, there won't be any negative effect because they assume that taxpayers will work just as much, save just as much, invest just as much. You get the same level of entrepreneurship, whether the tax rates are down here or up here. They just want the tax rates the same everywhere because then they think, well, if people can't do tax planning, then they're just going to be sort of you know, like sheep awaiting slaughter and governments can take more and more money from them. But in reality, the academic evidence is overwhelming that taxpayers do respond to incentives. So yes, it might be possible, you know, if the Biden administration and the European governments and the OECD that are such active proponents of this global minimum tax, they might at the end of the day succeed. But they're only going to succeed in imposing it on the world. They're not going to succeed in generating more revenue. And I want to actually give an example of how higher tax burdens don't have a good effect. 
Here's a chart uh, showing the tax burden as a share of GDP in the late 1960s and then the five years from 2010 to 2014. So actually, I need to update this one. I did this about five years ago. So you can see that between the late 60s and the early part of last decade, the tax burden in the, in the old EU-15, that's what I'm looking at here, the old EU-15, the tax burden increased by 10 percentage points of GDP, mostly because of the value added tax, but you know, other factors as well. So a significant increase in the tax burden as a share of GDP. Well, this is what debt was as a share of GDP in the last five years of the 1960s on average. So in theory, if you listen to the politicians who are raising taxes, they were saying, we need to get our public finances under control. We need to reduce deficits. We need to reduce our national debt. We need to sort of put our house in order. So what do you think happened? They did this giant tax increase. They definitely did that part of what they said. Did this huge tax increase in the tax burden in EU 15 countries, did that actually lead to lower levels of public debt? Well, the answer is, of course not. Public debt skyrocketed again. All of this is way, way before the pandemic. Uh, so, so the bottom line is every single penny of additional revenue that the different governments collected wound up increasing government spending and then some. So in some, in some sense, they actually turbocharged the growth of government spending. Uh, and, and, and I think the same thing unambiguously will happen uh, if Europe goes, harmonizes taxes, uses that as a pretense to increase tax rates further. Now, by the way, why are they so interested in doing this? Because we did have a very virtuous period of tax competition. Between 1980 and about 10 years ago, the average top personal tax rate in the Western world dropped from the upper 60s down to about 40, and the average corporate tax rate dropped from 48% down to the lower 20s. So tax competition worked in the sense that politicians faced a lot of pressure to lower tax rates. And by the way, taxes, revenues as a share of GDP from income and profits taxes are actually higher today at those much lower rates. So there was a lack of curve effect. But the point is, the politicians want even more revenue. Why? They're politicians, but especially because of those demographic changes that we're looking at. And the fear, I think, unquestionably, that you, you get in different Treasury Departments and Finance Ministries, uh, not just in Europe, but around the world, they see these demographic changes coming. It's not like this is a mystery. <clears throat> you talk to any finance ministry or Treasury Department economist anywhere in the world, and they're going to say, yes, we have a major problem coming up. Now, I want to make a point, uh, and, then, uh, and then begin to wrap up so we can do some Q&A. I want to make a point that this is not just an issue of fiscal policy. I'm a public finance economist. I love to bore people to tears talking about marginal tax rates and, and the different types of government spending and the, the growth or anti-growth effects that those policies might have. But I want to show something about Western Europe that I think is an underappreciated story. The Fraser Institute in Canada does the Economic Freedom of the World Index, where they rank jurisdictions around the world and who has the most economic liberty. And historically, Hong Kong's always been number one. That's, of course, very tenuous. Singapore's always been number two. Countries like New Zealand and Switzerland tend to be three and four. Uh, but I want to show the 14 of the, of the original EU 15. Let's take out the UK since it's not part of the European Union anymore. So the 14 traditional countries of Western Europe. In 2000, their average economic freedom score was 7.9 on this 1 to 10 scale. Very good. By 2010, they were down to 7.7, .7, and now they're down to 7.55. Now, in some, to some degree, that's because fiscal policy has worsened. But even a bigger reason is that all the other variables in the Economic Freedom of the World Report also have gone down. So you're talking about trade policy, regulatory policy, monetary policy, and the quality of governance, things like rule of law and property rights and so on and so forth. So, so Western Europe is moving in the wrong direction, which makes their economies less dynamic, uh, gives them less vitality, less entrepreneurship. Uh, at the same time, there's now all this pressure for higher tax burdens. So what does that mean? Does it mean it's utterly hopeless? No, I'm going to close on a semi-optimistic note. 
Not really too optimistic, because I'm going to start by saying that the Maastricht-style fiscal rules simply don't work. What are the Maastricht fiscal rules? It's basically almost a balanced budget rule, but instead of like a balanced budget requirement that we have in states in the U.S., which by the way don't work either, uh, the Maastricht rules say, well, okay, you know, just keep make sure your deficit isn't above three percent of GDP. Make you know, try to keep your debt under sixty percent of GDP. But but those policies have not worked. You know, just like in the U.S., forty-nine out of fifty states have balanced budget requirements. It doesn't stop taxing and spending and borrowing in California, New Jersey, Illinois, states like that. Well, likewise, the Maastricht criteria have not stopped all those grim numbers that I was sharing earlier about government spending and government debt increasing in different European countries. What does work is to have some sort of spending cap. And I think the role model that, uh, that Europe should follow is the so-called debt break that they have in Switzerland. Germany has a version of it. Sweden now has a version of it. Uh, but I want to show you some data from Switzerland that I think is very powerful. Here are the 20-odd years before voters adopted the debt break, because this came in via a referendum. Government spending was growing at an average rate of 4.5% a year. Uh, well, here's 2003 to 2010. Government spending grew a little more than 2% a year. If you then go 2003 to 2019, uh, government spending is actually growing less than 2% a year. Good fiscal policy, admittedly just my opinion on this, but I think there's lots of evidence, including from normally left-leaning international bureaucracies like the IMF, World Bank, OECD, etc. Good fiscal policy, I think, should be defined by having government grow slower than the private sector. Because what is your private sector? The private sector is your tax base. So if nominal GDP, let's sort of, you know, let's let's just sort of ignore inflation for the moment. Nominal GDP in most countries is going to grow anywhere from like three to six percent a year. Some of it's inflation, some of it's real GDP growth, but nominal GDP, in that, in other words, also, your nominal tax base is going to grow 3 to 6% a year. If you have some sort of spending cap that says government should only grow, say, 2% a year, what's going to happen over time? Over time, your burden of government spending relative to the private economy is going to shrink. And since your tax base is continuing to grow at that 3 to 6% a year, if your government spending is growing 2% a year, eventually your deficit is going to begin to shrink. And then if your deficit is either disappearing or growing slower than your private economy, your government debt as a share of GDP is going to shrink. And remember, before I was showing that table that showed that only Switzerland and Germany in recent years have had their government debt as a share of GDP go down? I think that's because of debt break policies uh, such as a spending cap. So, so the bottom line is there's too much spending right now, and it's going to get a lot worse because of demographics. Normal policies that politicians usually reach for, like tax increases, I think will simply make a bad situation worse. But right here on the continent, in, with Switzerland, we have an example of something that is very successful. And specifically, I already mentioned international bureaucracies acknowledging that too much government spending hurts growth. International bureaucracies have done very extensive studies on different fiscal rules around the world. And the fiscal rule, overwhelmingly, in almost every study they've ever done, the fiscal rule that works is an expenditure limit, spending cap, whatever you want to call it. Spending caps work, balanced budget requirements don't work, Maastricht requirements don't work. You have to focus on the variable that is actually causing the problem, and that is government spending growing faster than the private economy's ability to finance it. Uh, and is this going to be a challenge? Well, yes, because... Politicians don't want to handcuff themselves. And it's going to be an even bigger challenge as we have the aging population putting even more upward pressure on government spending. But as far as I'm concerned, the alternative is to have Greek-style fiscal crises, which I think Italy is about to teach us a lesson, uh, depending on how long the European Central Bank uh, wants to prop them up. Uh, and so with that, why don't I go ahead and uh, 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 my blog was mentioned. That's where I write every day. On, on these issues of public finance and international economics. Uh, but um, you know, feel free to look at any of those sites. Uh, but other than that, I'll stop right here and be happy to take uh, any questions on this exciting topic.
Thank you, Dan. I thought that was a great talk, and of course, no surprise to see Switzerland as the shining example. Uh, so I'm happy to open up the floor for Q and A. So uh, feel free to ask a question, and of course, uh, also introduce yourself uh, first if you have a question. Yes. Uh, I study social sciences at the university here, um, and uh, I learned a lot about the Brentwoods regime. And I was wondering why you argue that um, like uh, expansionary fiscal rules actually detrimental for um, like for economic growth. Whilst in, like during the Brentwoods regime, there was like uh, an insane investment into a very sustainable project that then led to incredible growth. The Bretton Woods regime was mostly about maintaining the system of fixed exchange rates after World War II, and that broke down in, what, in the early 70s, and now countries all have floating exchange rates. Uh, I'm not a monetary economist. My gut instinct is I prefer floating exchange rates because the amount of, of effort it would take governments to maintain, if you have fixed exchange rates, every government basically has to have the same monetary policy, and I think that's just unrealistic. Uh, but but whatever your views are on monetary policy and the relative value of fixed versus floating exchange rates, I don't think that makes a difference when we're talking about what's the ideal fiscal policy. Um, now, there is a connection, obviously, if you have central banks financing government spending, uh, which, again, there's a, there's a big debate going on right now, you know, is Italy being propped up solely by the European Central Bank? What would happen if that support disappeared? Would Italy have a Greek-style fiscal episode? And, and we just don't know yet. And, and, and a lot of people are watching that very closely, including some major money people, not just policy wonks like me. Um, uh, obviously, if you get to a really bad case scenario where you're Argentina or Zimbabwe, and you are using your central bank to basically print money to finance your government budget, it's pretty unambiguous that that leads to very, very bad results. Uh, is that what is happening in Italy? I don't, you know, I like to think that it's simply a transitional thing and that, and that the goal is to actually have Italy then stand on its own two feet as the sort of the, all the pandemic stuff winds down. Uh, and, and by the way, I suppose I should say uh, since I mentioned briefly monetary policy, the reason Western economies are suffering inflation is not because Joe Biden's stimulus plan. I didn't like it. But the reason the U.S. is suffering inflation is because our Federal Reserve, starting in the spring of 2020, because of the pandemic, you know, almost a year before Biden took office, our Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet by $4 trillion because they panicked. They thought, oh, my God, this could be 2008 all over again. Uh, now, the initial panic, I can understand. Everyone was afraid that everyone was going to die. Financial markets would lock up. So the Fed thought, we're going to just flood the system with money. The European Central Bank did the same thing. The Bank of England did the same thing. But the problem is, once we got to the summer of 2020, and it sort of became obvious that everyone wasn't going to die, and that has gotten to the fall of 2020, and everyone knew the vaccines were being rolled out, central banks didn't start unwinding all that easy money policy. Now, why did they not unwind it? Well, I think politicians like easy money because at least when the bubble is blowing up, it feels good. Oh, look at this financial markets. They're going way up. Look at how easy it is for people to find jobs. Look how easy it is for businesses to get capital. Uh, so it always feels good when you start the inflation. It never feels good when the inflation then spreads throughout your economy. You have bubbles, you have rising consumer prices. Uh, so I'm getting a little bit far afield from your original question, but the bottom line is, is that, that the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy is only direct when you do have a government finance using the printing press of the central bank to finance its spending. That's largely has not been a problem of the Western world, although Italy might be a case where, where at least in the short run, it, it is being propped up. Yes. Um, uh, Max Caldo, and I work as a tax advisor at EY. Um, I was a bit late, so apologies if you've discussed this while I was not here. But uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, inflation. Do you see any effect of the inflation that we're seeing now towards long-term government debt output? Right? Because what I've been taught at economics in high school is always the one great thing about inflation is that it effectively reduces your debt 
In the short run, if you have unanticipated inflation and investors have bought government bonds that are paying 2%, then all of a sudden inflation is 10%. Yeah, the government sort of has a one-time taking of the value of, of the existing debt. Uh, and that's actually one of the reasons why, not, not the biggest reason by far, but you know, after World War II, many Western countries had enormous government debt, sort of approaching the levels that we have today. Uh, and they never actually reduced those levels of debt, at least in many cases. But because they didn't have sort of year after year giant deficits as, as the private economy was growing and debt stayed flat as a share of GDP, those government debt burdens came down significantly. Part of that also was you had inflation. Uh, and, and especially in the 70s, when you had unanticipated inflation, uh, you had governments getting an indirect windfall because they were screwing over bondholders. But here's the problem with that strategy. It works in the short run. But look at what's happened just over the last, what, six months even? Interest rates on government bonds are going up. And, and, and that's just an inflation premium finally sort of being built in. And how, how long will that process continue? Well, that depends. Investors are sitting there thinking, are central banks going to tighten and unwind some of that quantitative easing, uh, balance sheet expansion, whatever you want to call it? You know, to the extent that that investors around the world think that central banks are going to continue to inflate, you know, the, the interest rate, the inflation premium on government debt is going to shoot up, not to mention what I think is going to become an even bigger problem for some country, which is just the risk premium. I mean, I've always been baffled. I guess not really, but it always shocks me when at least prior to the last couple of months, I would see interest rates on Italian debt and German debt, government debt we're talking about here, being so close. And I would think, why, you know, who are these people in financial markets thinking that Italy's as good of a, of a, of a, of a credit, uh, has a good credit rating just like Germany? Uh, well, I think they were actually making a relatively smart bet that, well, it doesn't really matter if we don't think Italy a, a, has a sound long-run governance. Uh, we think that it's going to be bailed out, protected, uh, propped up, whatever you want to call it. Because, by the way, I I've been talking about whether this European Central Bank is propping up Italy. Well, what happens if the IMF decides to swoop in or something like that? So if you're, if you're an investor and you're buying government bonds, well, maybe the fact that, oh, okay, so Italy's government debt only pays one percentage point more than uh, Germany's government debt. Privately, we think it's a much worse credit uh, uh, risk, but... We don't actually think we'll ever be exposed to it because somehow someone is going to uh, bail us out if Italy gets in trouble. Yes. Sir. from Maastricht. I want to come back to some of the points you made earlier because uh, uh, we actually revised the Maastricht rules uh, 2011 with two uh, elements which come into what you said. One is uh, the 120th debt reduction rule. So we take 120 of the excess debt and we, every year we take it uh, down for uh, 120th percent. And it's a rule that is still uh, existing. And the second one is the uh, government expenditure having to uh, grow uh, less than the potential GDP. So these two rules are already part of the frame of the what we revised in 2011. <coughs> Uh, of course, you know that uh, the rules uh, will be revised, uh, I don't know, uh, at the end of the year, beginning of next year, and we hear that uh, some of these rules might be abandoned or revised substantially, including the debt reduction rule, because they're not uh, uh, realistic anymore. Uh, well, I mean, what, what, yeah. what is your view on this? Should these rules be kept uh, or revised, or, or how, you think? I've always been under the impression from people I've talked to that, that, that in terms of enforcement, it's like the balanced budget rules you have in different American states. That, that uh, you know, uh, I know at times there have been issues of whether, whether the European Commission was going to have enforcement proceedings or whatever it is you call it for countries that are violating the Maastricht rules. My impression from afar is that they're just not meaningful enforcement uh, of these provisions uh, and I would 
be very interested to learn otherwise if, if there is some uh, has been some effective uh, implementation of that because everything I've seen and admittedly I spend 90% of my time on the US rules and very little time on the European rules uh, but you know it's one thing to have a rule as a concept the enforcement is the key thing and I think in Switzerland uh, maybe because they actually changed their constitution as opposed to just a law and maybe because it went in with an 84.7% vote of Swiss people, uh, maybe the politicians just feel that even if there was some way for them to get around it, they don't. And by the way, it did include an emergency opt-out, so they had spending above the allowable trend line during the pandemic, but there's a specific clawback procedure, and I will be very interested to see, will the spending actually get clawed back over the next three or four years, because I think it's based on a five-year rolling average, if I remember correctly. Uh, but, but again, my impression is that what they have in Europe, even with some of these additional uh, elements that you talked about, it's just never been meaningfully enforced. And, uh, and I gather the enforcement is if the commission actually takes action against the country, and do they have to, I assume they must have some level of discretion and they simply don't do it, especially when there's something like a pandemic. I'm just going to make that last point. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, my voice is a bit hoarse, not too close. Um, it's an active application of the rules, is the issue. And it is because the latitude which is allowed. It is allowed, and if you actually, I suspect in the case of Italy, the rules will be much more sharply applied now mm -hmm. that the favorite person of the ECB is no longer in the mm. show. There was one thing that struck me at the beginning, um, and it was from the contribution, very outset. Why is it that globally the significance of tax sovereignty is no longer an issue? I ask this because for nine years when I was Minister in Ireland, I, over a nine-year period, felt myself being more and more and more uh, removed from my colleagues in, in, in councils, and I insisted that our tax sovereignty rules in Ireland that we have competitive rates mm -hmm. should be respected. Simply asking for respect about something that is fundamental, for example, in the United States. Why is it that globally people have just lost sight of the significance of tax sovereignty, mm -hmm. which after all is the link between people and governments? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the whole reason I set up the Center for Freedom and Prosperity was because of the issue of tax competition and fiscal sovereignty. Uh, this is when I set it up back in 2000. That's when the OECD had its anti-tax haven blacklist. And it was very obvious to me from the very beginning where this project was leading. Uh, okay, they started out targeting very small tax havens because they could be bullied and threatened with financial protectionism. But you read their language, and I already mentioned earlier this theory of capital export neutrality. The, the OECD, the European Commission, and their anti-tax competition reports, they were very, very clear, this is the theory that we want international taxation to be based on, and if that's the theory that you want, and by the way, this is just the, the, the academic wrapping that they put around what's really driving them, which is that they want to make it easier to raise taxes. I mean, as I said, when, when, when personal and corporate tax rates fell dramatically after the Reagan and Thatcher tax cuts and countries all around the world were slashing personal tax rates at the top, corporate income tax rates, it's, it's not like anybody in France or Germany wanted to cut tax rates, but they did it too. Why? Because of the pressure. You were going to lose investment, entrepreneurship, jobs if you didn't sort of join the race. Uh, but governments have never liked that. And that's, that, that was the whole genesis of the OECD's so-called harmful tax competition project. And it's the whole generous, uh, 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 genesis of the corp global corporate minimum tax. And there are lots of other ideas. And by the way, if the global corporate minimum tax ever gets in place, rest assured that it's just a matter of time before they want to do the same thing on personal taxes, capital gains taxes. I mean, heck, they, you know, at the end of the day, they might even want to do stuff like that on, on wealth taxes, capital gains taxes, you name it. Uh, and, and so I think this is a vitally important issue. I was very disappointed when Ireland signed on. Uh, and, and because, okay, I, I, my, and my assumption was, and I, it's not like I had any insight or connection with any Irish lawmakers to confirm this, but my assumption was, okay, so we agree to raise our corporate tax to 15%, and sign on to these various other rules. But hey, 
at least we're going to screw over Cayman and Bermuda and places like that, that maybe were a competitor on that margin with Ireland. Or maybe they, you know, maybe uh, you're, you're, the lawmakers there just felt like, okay, well, to be good Europeans, we have to do this. I think that that actually plays a role uh, where you just get told over and over again that this is just what good people do, whereas tax competition is something that rogue regimes do. I think that actually just, I'm sorry, I don't to the conversation, but that is precisely it. Mm-hmm. I famously told the French minister that if France, the country, decided to lower its tax rates to lower than Ireland, we would have the good manners to mind our own business and suggested that the French minister should do the same. I never got a Christmas card from the French minister. I'll tell you the story. Well, I mean, I, I, I very much care about this issue. The OECD actually threatened to have me arrested at one of their global forums in Mexico City back in, I think it was 2008. So, uh, so I've, uh, I've actually, you know, I've walked the walk and talked the talk both. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, Alexander Rengi, Swiss Mission. So full disclosure, we did not sponsor this uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, and, and to be honest, I didn't also expect uh, to hear this much about Switzerland. Uh, during the presentation, but I mean, I'm, I'm happy to uh, uh, offer any any uh, comments. But I mean, you're you're perfectly informed about the debt rate instrument which we introduced at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, notably on the back of of continuously rising uh, uh, debt, and and uh, you also mentioned that 85 percent of the Swiss population uh, were in favor of this. So so it's not a center right or or, or um, you know. Uh, uh, an issue which was only supported by part of the population, but it really is, is, is uh, carried. I guess the other um, important aspect is that it's also very hard to raise um, tax rates in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Because these are federal tax rates, they're also fixed in the Constitution, so you would need double majority of people and cantons to change them. But having said all that, I mean, a debt, a debt rate instrument doesn't get you around other difficult choices, uh, i.e., you know, especially when your debt is already high, where to uh, how to reduce uh, uh, debt. So I guess you mentioned the social uh, spending. Uh, you could either cut benefits, which is very unpopular, uh, politically speaking, um, or you could, um, uh, you know, I guess grow, uh, increase retirement age, which is also not very uh, popular, as, as we also know. So which of these traders as an economist do you think is um, the way to go. I mean, is it more about reducing benefits, which many people will argue also have knock-on effects mm-hmm. on our growth? You make people, is it inevitable that we all need to work at some point till the age of 70? Um, and maybe also your reflections on, on what this means for the Eurozone, where we have, obviously, as you alluded to, different debt levels, but mm-hmm. more and more economic integration, which will, I guess, only get deeper into the future and, and Joint debt, which is, which is probably also just a question of time until that becomes a, a more of a regular. Well, as a heritage, Cato, Center for Freedom and Prosperity uh, economist, I obviously have free market, small government sympathies. But let me note something here. If you know the country, if you notice the countries that have relatively small debt levels as a share of GDP, and if you notice the countries that, uh, uh, well, here, here's another chart, small levels of government uh, uh, debt as a share of GDP. They either have, as in the case of Australia, basically a wholesale private pre-funded retirement system as opposed to a pay-as-you-go tax and transfer government system, or like Switzerland, like uh, well, actually Sweden is partnered in Australia, but Switzerland, Netherlands, uh, you know, have significant occupational pensions, which is basically pre-funding private retirement. Uh, so when you're looking at what's driving these, the long-run spending problems in countries, uh, I, I showed all the data about it's how the aging of the population. Well, obviously, if you put in policies sooner rather than later that shift people toward pre-funded retirement mechanisms, I think that helps to solve the problem. 
doesn't solve you know, the health component of a higher age-related spending that governments are dealing with. That then opens up a whole different kettle of fish about, you know, what's the best system? And we obviously have very high costs in the U.S. Uh, with a huge amount of third-party payers. So we're certainly not a role model for anyone. Uh, actually, you know, in, in the, some of the international comparisons, Switzerland comes off reasonably well about having a competitive healthcare system with costs reasonably low as a share of GDP. But all countries are facing, you know, when you're talking about age-related spending uh, or social welfare spending growing in the future, it's basically pensions for old people and it's healthcare for old people. That, that's going to be driving probably at least two-thirds of the projected increases in government spending uh, in different countries. By the way, I... I do you think the clawback and the Swiss debt break will work over the next couple of years? I, I think so. I mean, at least this is uh, we're, we're, we're hoping. I mean, the pandemic, of course, was was absolutely uh, unprecedented. But I mean, the, 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 the instrument was designed that you can incur um, um, uh, debt also or for uh, you know negative revenues over a certain time. But that over time, you should then actually strive for balance and and i guess the, the instrument works works in such a way that uh, parliament is not allowed to um uh, budget you know regular deficit the deficits over time uh, what we've also learned since we introduced the system is that over time it actually has a bias uh towards you know fiscal surpluses because you 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 um budget a balance the budget over time but um as government agencies never actually you know, by definition, at least in our country, can never, you know, um, uh, always use up every single franc which is, uh, has been budgeted. They'll always have some leftovers, and, and those have not been carried over. So actually, that has contributed to, to a falling uh, debt to GDP. Uh, but of course, now it is, uh, you know, that there is a big question around how we can uh, reduce this debt, how, how, for how much long we will, but the pandemic debt, how long we will keep it. No, you, you need to send some of your bureaucrats to the U.S. because in the 12th month of the fiscal year, our bureaucrats are experts at making sure they use up every penny so it doesn't somehow affect their baseline for the, uh, for the next year. Since, since we have been talking about spending caps, there is one state in the U.S., Colorado, that has something called the TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And it's, it's sort of a backdoor spending cap because what it is is it says that governments cannot have revenue increase faster than population plus inflation. That, combined with a balanced budget rule, means that government spending can't grow faster than population plus inflation. So if you were to look at the 50 states in the U.S., there's no question Colorado has far and away the best fiscal rule. Now, just like in Switzerland, you can have a vote of the people to raise taxes. It seems like every two years, Colorado has major initiative and referendums uh, where they can do that. And by the way, didn't Switzerland just vote to have a small increase in the VAT to do something about retirement spending? Yeah. So, so, so it's not impossible to have bigger government with a spending cap and a vote of the people. It just means that lawmakers actually have to make or you know, interest groups need to make an effective and persuasive case uh, to their voters. And the same thing happens in Colorado. Some Tabor restrictions, especially on the local level, are overridden where they, the voters agree to let politicians temporarily increase spending faster than inflation plus pop population. So inflation plus population is a very simple rule for people to understand, probably a lot more simple than trying to explain the intricacies of what the five-year rolling average for the debt break. Uh, but the bottom line is, it, compared to the balanced budget requirements that don't work, the, the Tabor rule in the U.S. does work. All right. Um, unless there are any other interventions, just just but, but, but do you think will really happen if the politicians in the eurozone have to uh, deal with the crisis in Italy and other countries? Because that's uh, do you think uh, they will accept a high inflation rate for for a longer time? Maybe not ten percent, but five percent, or mm -hmm. will they raise the pension age uh, faster than they are doing now? Or uh, what do you think will really happen? If you, if well, you look at the policy yeah. in the past, what would be the reaction in the future? On my blog, yesterday and today, I had a two-part series about Italy and a government debt crisis. 
Uh, and the first one was just sort of explaining the numbers. This is why they're poised to have one, depending on what the ECB does and for how long they do it. And the second part that was today's column was saying that there should not be a bailout. In other words, I made an explicit argument that it's better to have a default than a bailout, because a default contains moral hazard. And I actually, I used, the whole reason I had this chart was because I created it literally this morning and used it in the column, and I made the point that, you know, if Greece had been allowed to default back here, I don't think you would see, well, you wouldn't see certainly the Greek debt shooting up, but I also think you would have had less debt in these other countries as well. Because all of a sudden they would have thought, huh, they let Greece default, maybe they'll let us default as well. And investors would have said, huh, they let Greece default, we took losses on lending money to the Greek government, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to lend money to Spain and Portugal and, and Italy. And by the way, France and Belgium are not that dissimilar to these countries, but I put them in a, they're, they're sort of the second wave. This, these will be the first wave countries if everything goes to hell. France and Belgium would be the second wave. So it's sort of like different dominoes. When, when do they fall if there's some sort of economic and fiscal crisis? Now, there's no question that a default does damage. No one's going to lend you more money if you default. So overnight, you have to go to a balanced budget rule. Now, that might not be a bad thing if, if you're Italy or some of these other countries uh, facing, you know, you've been spending yourself into crisis. Okay, maybe stop. Uh, but also, it's going to hurt all the investors that foolishly bought the Italian government bonds, including probably a lot of Italian banks that overnight become bankrupt if there's a default. So, so you will have people at the ECB and at the European Commission, at the IMF, you know, the same troika that got involved with Greece, which is, of course, was much smaller in terms of potential global effects. So if Italy was to default, and I think it's the third biggest debt market in the world, uh, yeah, that, that, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to think, oh, my God, in the short run, it's going to be such a mess. We have no choice but to intervene, bail out, prop up, whatever you want to call it. I just think that in the long run, that means you get more debt. You wind up having bigger problems. Uh, you know, you, you, your long run problem becomes much greater. It, 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 if, that's why I was a big fan of letting Greece default back whenever. I think it would have avoided the current mess that we're potentially about to face. But I guess on that cheerful note... <laughs>